Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. And yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Every week, I know I promise you a really great show, and I think we deliver. I really do. I don't think I've ever let you down, um, and this week will not be an exception. Um, I am really excited to talk to our guest. Um, this week, we are going into the, the area of literature. Um, uh, our guest is the Washington Blade editor, um, you guys are all familiar with the L.A. Blade editor, who is the co-host of the show and producer, um, and that is Brody Levesque, and we will, he, is, he is here too. Um, we'll be going to him for a few news bits in just a minute. But um, the L.A. Blade is the sister publication of the Washington Blade, and the Washington Blade is the nation's oldest LGBTQ newspaper. And as you know, around here, we do respect the older things um, or older people. Uh, okay, enough of that. Moving on. Um, but the Washington Blade has a very rich journalistic legacy. Um, Kevin Knapp has been its editor for the last 20 years, and uh, he has written a book, and it is a memoir titled How We Won the War for LGBTQ Equality. Um, and it is from his vantage point as the editor of the Washington Blade, and he kind of gives us, he, he shares articles that he's written and writing he's written over the past 20 years that have chronicled things like marriage equality, hate crimes legislation, the defeat of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, and other landmarks. The piece about the title, though, that I think is, most important that you grasp and that we walk away with is the subtitle, which is, and how our enemies could take it all away. Um, and we're seeing that viciously right now across the country as the right wing is rapidly going after trans kids and their families. Um, they are, different factions are trying to erode marriage equality. So, yeah, the, the war is not done. We are still on, and they could take it all away. And so there's a lot of cautionary um, information in Kevin's um, memoir around that. But, <laughs> but that is not all. This is not just the little gay history dry telling. There are so many great stories in this. And um, as I said in um, our write-up about this show, while it is unlike the bestsellers spare, uh, there were no penises frozen in the writing of how we won the war. But there are plenty of tea stories. Um, there are stories about outing a prominent Fox News host. There's a story about frantically crawling under the tables at the Washington Correspondents' Dinner with Laverne Cox looking for a diamond bracelet and many more, and we are going to ask about those. So stay tuned. It is going to be great, um, and um, I can't wait to talk to Kevin. However, 
First before and foremost, we do want to go to Brody Levesque, who will not be ignored, and uh, hear what he has to say about what's going on today in the LGBTU world. Hey, Brody. Hey, Rob. Well, fortunately, we do have some good news, and I'm going to start off with that. In a speech delivered today earlier in Washington at the Women in Military Service for America Memorial, which is at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery, VA Secretary Dennis McDowell announced that the Department of Veterans Affairs has issued an updated version of its 64-year-old mission statement. The new mission statement reads, to fulfill President Lincoln's promise to care for those who have served in our nation's military and for their families, caregivers, and survivors. And what's critical to note about this mission statement is that it now is an all-encompassing thing. Um, As the secretary was delivering his remarks, he called out several prominent women who were in the audience, including uh, a person who has actually been a guest of this show. He called out the Assistant Secretary of Veterans Affairs for Public and Intergovernmental Affairs. That's a mouthful. Um, Brenda Sue Fulton, who I know personally, Uh, Sue is not only an out lesbian, but uh, she was a moving force uh, during the time period, and Kevin knows her well, uh, and we'll probably talk about that, uh, to getting rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and a few other things. Uh, Sue was a 1980 graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. That was West Point's first class to admit uh, women. Uh, She Uh, joined the Veterans Administration after being appointed by uh, President uh, Biden earlier uh, this year. Uh, And in her capacity, uh, she was the one that kind of uh, got the VA on board to kind of tweak um, its mission statement. And one of the things that they did uh, upon Sue and the other initiatives coming out of the staff there was they did a survey of approximately probably 30,000 vets and they wanted to make sure that the statement was going to fly. This new uh, one that the secretary unveiled today was chosen over the current version by every age group, by men, women, LGBTQ veterans, white folk, black folk, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, uh, Alaska, and then, of course, uh, the uh, First Nations, uh, the American Aboriginal or the American Indians. So that was a really positive thing. So moving forward, Uh, The VA's mission is all-inclusive, and it is very much encompassing. Um, But wait, we have more good news. So just before we went to air, uh, in Lansing, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has signed the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act in the act, which will expand basic protections for the LGBTQ community. It prohibits discrimination at places such as schools, offices, and housing, based on a personal sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, In her signing statement uh, to the uh, folks at the Michigan Capitol who were present, the governor said, and I quote, in the words of Detroit native Lizzo, it's about damn time. Bigotry is bad for business. Come to Michigan, you will be respected and protected under the law. And the governor, like I said, signed that just shortly before we went on the air. So props and thanks to um, the governor, who is a huge LGBT supporter. And I need to note that Michigan's attorney general uh, is a member of our community. She's out. 
which is really kind of cool. So this kind of uh, makes things in Michigan go um, a lot better. Um, and then I got one more piece, which isn't so nice, and it's kind of tragic. It's a story that my reporters and I are actually currently engaged in working on. Um, it has to do with our trans siblings. There was a young lady by the name of Eden Knight. She was a Saudi national. She was a Saudi trans woman. And um, she unfortunately died by suicide uh, after she was forced to transition, uh, detransition, I'm sorry, detransition by her deeply conservative Muslim parents. Um, The reason this story is still being worked on is because there's a lot of moving parts to the story. However, I can say this much. Her father is a senior advisor to the crown prince. He's also a deputy governor of the Saudi bank, the number one bank in Saudi Arabia. Uh, This particular young lady, Eden Knight, um, was familiar with the Washington, D.C. area because she had gone to high school there uh, about five or six years ago. Her father, before he became governor of the Saudi bank, was actually one of the folks at the International Monetary Fund, which is headquartered there in Washington. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts to the story, Rob. Uh, it involves and this, a resident. Yeah, go ahead. Brody, the, I, yeah, Brody, say, there's, I was going to give you some more overview here of what the yeah. story is, even though we can't kind of fill it out just yet. It also happens to involve a very conservative uh, security firm, private security firm that does mainly cybersecurity. It has numerous, multiple contracts with the Saudi government and the American government. Uh, they are located in Reston, Virginia, which is in suburban Washington, D.C., just outside of uh, Dulles International Airport in Fairfax County. Um, and unfortunately, so there's, there's much to it. Uh, Aaron Reed, who is a prominent uh, columnist, writer, and researcher in the trans community and is now a contributor uh, for the Los Angeles Blade, is working on the story. I also have another reporter working on it, and I'm coordinating with the uh, Los Angeles and Washington Blades international editor, who's also been a guest to the show, Michael Wavers. Uh, so that story will be breaking. There'll be more coming, uh, but it's just a very, very, very tragic story. And again, um, I think more than anything else, it points to the fragility uh, for you know our trans siblings. Go ahead, Ron. And and she she did this in Saudi Arabia. She did. She was forcibly. Well, this is part of the story that we're working on. We're not sure if it was voluntary. It looks like it was forcible, but she was. Uh, put on a uh, literally on a Saudi government jet and flown back to the kingdom. Uh, her grandfather, uh, one of her uncles, uh, currently is an advisor to the crown prince. Uh, this story is almost like a novel, and it really is tragic. But yes, she she we don't know all of the particulars, but we do know that we've had her death confirmed. I was actually confirmed by the uncle I just mentioned uh, in a tweet. Uh, the, it's the Al-Sharafi family, for our listeners that want to go look this family up. They're extremely powerful. Um, and her uncle is a military advisor, apparently, to the Crown Prince. But um, this is, you know, it, this is a no, it's, it, yeah. yeah, no, it's horrifying. It's, and, it, and it points to the, I mean, there's obviously cultural and um, 
definitely overlays and underlays um, to this particular story, but it is just unconscionable um, the choice on the parts of some parents that are so deep in their own dogma and their own perceptions that they don't value the, the life of their child. I mean, that is, that's the real crux of it to me in, in different families that I've interviewed who've had young children who've come out of trans at a very young age and the choices those families have had to pick in supporting that child. And obviously this is quite the opposite. But most yeah. of those families realize that by not being supportive and not supporting that child's path, that they are setting that child up for suicide, for severe mental health issues, and um, the one father that I talked to said, you know, I mean, his quote has been quoted since then about he knew he had the choice between, you know, a dead son or a living daughter, and he chose the living daughter. Um, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, and it, it, it also speaks to what's going on in Florida and all these states because they are definitely – trying to pump up that that same mindset that killed this young person. Um, and it's mm -hmm. all horrible, tragic, and we have to fight it really, really hard. Yeah, pretty bad. Well, yeah. with that, I think so, I'll end and uh, hand it back to you and so we can talk to uh, my uh, friend Kevin. I've known Kevin for going on 18 years. He's an incredible human being. He's a damn good journalist, and I'm not saying this because um, he's one of the owners of the company and therefore my boss. I'm saying it because it's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, he's been, you know, at the forefront uh, of many, many things and of all the years that I was uh, assigned to Washington as part of the wire services. You know, the Washington Blade really was, in fact, you know, the voice uh, for our community. And for me personally, um, just in an aside, when I first arrived in Washington over 40 years ago, my first assignment was for United Press. I was deeply closeted, deeply scared, and I tripped into uh, a gay bookstore up in DuPont called Lambda Rising. I later made friends with the owners, um, Deacon and, and Jim. But the Washington Blade was carried there, and, and it became – that that was my view into a world that I couldn't access because of my job and because of the times. Uh, and it was also how I got to know uh, my now colleague and friend and person who's just incredible, and that's Lou Chabarro, uh, the Washington Blade's uh, most senior correspondent and uh, in his own right, uh, a force of nature. But with that, uh, I'll throw it back to you. Okay. <laughs> it's going... No need to do an introduction now. All right, Brody. Thanks so much. And with that, um, I would like to welcome to the show uh, Kevin Knapp. Kevin, welcome. Thanks so much. Um, it's, a, it's a thrill to be here. And I didn't realize, like, everyone else has already been on the show. I'm the last one. So I had to write a book to get here. But <laughs> well, I'm yeah, there, there are here. a few more that – 
we 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 do have a lineup. Um, ironically, somebody you write about in your book has actually made contact with us, wanting to get on the show. We're trying to uh, line that up, and that's Laverne Cox. Um, so so oh, you beat Laverne. Good. You beat Laverne. She has not been oh, here good. yet. So uh, I yeah. love Laverne. She's <laughs> fabulous. Yes, She's and great. we're gonna we're gonna ask about her because there there was a great story in your book about her. But I want to take you back to the beginning. Um, you said in the book that from the age of 10 that you knew you wanted to be a newspaper journalist. And that door opened for you, at least for you psychically, um, uh, or, or uh, from your, your, your inner, inner workings, um, during the 1981 baseball strike, or just after that, and you were a pissed-off 10-year-old. Tell us what happened. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still am a uh, pissed off Baltimore Orioles fan, but um, yeah, I was ten years old. I was ten years old, and the the baseball players went on strike, and during the season, and um, I was very upset. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Post, um, criticizing the players and suggesting that the fans boycott for two weeks in protest. And they published it. And not only did they publish it, but they uh, drew the, they had a cartoon image drawn of me, uh, like playing baseball. And I and I still remember being a little kid, and you know my parents um, subscribed to the post, and 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 you know rushing to get the paper and opening it up and seeing my my name and my ideas for the whole world to see. And and I was hooked from from that moment. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's sort of interesting. You kind of um stripped onto your future there in more ways than one other than just being a writer and a journalist but um it probably wasn't the first time you got notoriety for calling for a boycott and in the book you have quite an it's actually a series of stories that come from um a post that you or a a piece that you wrote and you put out um and it was when Hairspray, um, the movie, was coming out. And I have to tell you this up front. Your reaction was my reaction when I saw the okay. cast of Hairspray. Um, and for people who don't know, um, in the, the film Hairspray, John Travolta took the role that had been originally created by um, Divine in the independent film. And um, John Travolta... Just years prior to this, as a matter of fact, not only was he a member of the Scientology movement, but just a few years prior to Hairspray, I believe he had made a movie that was based on one of L. Ron Hubbard's books that was supposed to have some sort of Scientology method behind it. So he's not like just a sort of sideline Scientologist. He was like core. And the movie was coming out. And you wrote a post that went viral um, about why gay people should be boycotting um, hairspray. So take us yes. from that. What happened? <laughs> so it's one of those lightning in a bottle moments that you could never plan for. I wrote a very short, like a couple hundred word blog post, I think like right before the movie was coming out, just saying, because I'm a huge John Waters fan, I'm a huge Divine fan, and I'm a huge fan of the original hairspray. And so I just wrote, you know, John Travolta is the number two spokesperson for this cult Scientology that preaches 
that gay people can be cured or, you know, their sexual orientation can change and that it's destructive and it kills people. And so we should boycott this movie and go watch the original instead. And that's what I wrote. And then I forgot about it. And then like a week later, there was a, a gossip columnist for MSNBC who stumbled upon it and wrote a column and the headline was gays boycotting hair, hairspray. And so it went viral before we called it that. And I mean, it was crazy. It was everywhere. And I ended up on the O'Reilly factor. It was all over the national news. It, the scandal like followed the crew around on their, on their media tour for the movie. And it was, it was all over the place. And uh, it led to some very strange um, encounters with Scientology. Um, they are yeah. Uh, well, very, actually, I want, you, I, want to, I, I want to unpack some of that because you write about it in the book, and they are absolutely riveting stories um, that are all pieces. First one was you were invited on Fox News to talk to Bill O'Reilly. Now, I've, I've been on MSNBC, and I'm, I've got the courage to do that. But I don't know if I would ever have the courage to sit in a seat in Fox News. And I know Pooh Buttigieg does it all the time and is a master. What was going through your mind about going into that, and that lion's den and being essentially raw meat? Right. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean – I guess the reason I was totally comfortable is that Bill O'Reilly is pretty much, you know, a mental midget. It's not like he's a great debater. So I wasn't intimidated by Bill O'Reilly. Um, and I and I have the, the courage of my convictions, and I also have, um, you know, the truth on my side. So, you know, Scientology is a cult. We know that. Well established by many people who have left. Notably, uh, Leah Remini, who's done an incredible series of work uh, about her experiences there. So we're dealing with a cult. Um, they they openly talk about conversion therapy, that they operate conversion therapy and try to convert, you know, gay members. Um, so, and, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, of course, about John Travolta's own sexual orientation. I have no idea whether he's gay or not, but there's been a lot of rumors and well, and we know that that Scientology, you know, they interview you when you when you come into the quote church, they ask you all sorts of you know personal questions about your life and sex and everything, court all that stuff to blackmail you with later. So you know, it's not a great leap to to say that maybe John Travolta confessed to being gay and they have it on tape and that's why he's such a mouthpiece to them. I'm not saying that's the case, but. A lot of people have speculated that. So I right. felt perfectly comfortable going on Bill O'Reilly's show and saying these things. And, um, and you know, he's, he's an actor, right? Like his show is a shtick. He, he used to host Inside Edition. He, this is not uh, some great thinker. He, uh, before the, the cameras were turned on and it was just the two of us, he was as nice as could be. He talked about knowing, you know, he was familiar with the blade and, and, you know, I don't know, we just had a normal conversation. He was very nice. And then as soon as the cameras turn on, he, you know, he comes with this angry man stick. And uh, so, yeah, we had a, a heated exchange. Yeah. And just FYI for people listening, 
if you want to Google that exchange um, on YouTube, um, the interview is actually out there. I went and watched it, and you definitely held your own. Kudos, kudos um, <laughs> to him. Um, but then, and by the way, um, I was in West Hollywood at the time when they made the movie Perfect with John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis. This is definitely dating me. But um, it was filmed at the gym that I went to, and the gay rumors around John Travolta over things that were happening behind the scenes while that movie was being made, um, yep. in spades. So, yeah, they yeah, were I, definitely going around. But yeah, the other harrowing story you tell – oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the same, very same thing happened when he filmed Backdraft in Baltimore – uh, and all of the rumors and the stories about the gym that he was going to downtown and so forth. So those, those stories have been out there for literally decades. Yeah. But in the book, you talk about being invited by Scientology to go to one of their headquarters, and that story is, was riveting. My son tried to interrupt me while I was reading that. I was like, go away, go away. I'm like, I've got to get <laughs> It's like I'm sorry, like it's a book. You can stop. You can come back. But no, I had to I had to get to the end of that. Tell us what happened when Scientology invited you in. Yeah, so I was a little nervous about that because after I was on O'Reilly, uh, I referred to Scientology on national television as a cult, and it turns out they're very sensitive about that. So they were not happy with me. Um, I, in fact, I went back to work to death threats on my voicemail at the office the next day. Um, and I, but one of the calls was from the president of the D.C. church uh, and inviting me over because she thought I had a misunderstanding and I didn't really know what Scientology was about and I should come over there and meet with her. And so I said I would go if I could bring my publisher because I wasn't going to go alone. <laughs> and <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I go there, and I mean, the first thing, well, first of all, the, the D.C. Uh, church, the Scientology church, is right in the heart of DuPont School. I mean, it's in the middle of the neighborhood in a beautiful old restored mansion. So there's that. Uh, and you go in. Well, I, the, I, I'm, it, go the piece I love is how, and you're about to tell this, so I don't mean to usurp your story, but when you walked in, Seeing this gorgeous, beautiful office, that, <laughs> yes. um, and asking who it was. What, right, go that's ahead. Where I was going. So, <laughs> you, she leads me into this beautiful, you know, perfectly maintained office with the big mahogany desk and uh, soaring ceilings, and you know, this beautifully decorated office, corner office. And I said, "Wow, this is beautiful." I said, "Whose office is this?" And she goes, "This is Dr. Hubbard's office." as in L. Ron Hubbard, who died in 1984. Uh, and I don't know, I kind of winced, and she said, every church maintains an office for Dr. Hubbard. And, you know, it's right then and there, you have to just, like, you know, <laughs> okay. Well, it's kind of like, hello, that is people. the very definition of a cult. <laughs> that is exactly. what a cult would do. <laughs> oh, my God. Exactly. It was like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, we could we could spend all day on Scientology, but there's so many more stories I want to get to. Um, one, you know, obviously your book takes us through the arc of um, accomplishments and different fights that we've had as a movement and your perspective of that. One, though, dovetailed into that telling 
is a very personal story for you regarding your own marriage and your own viewpoints on marriage values. And that was around a car crash in October of 2014. Take us there and tell us what happened. Yeah, so um, I was, uh, yeah, I was in the back of a cab with a friend in Baltimore and uh, somebody ran a red light and T-boned us. Um, I broke all the bones in my left side of my face and, uh, you know, it was really, obviously a really scary situation. And um, at the time this happened, my now husband and I were planning a wedding and you know, something happens when you are faced with, a, you know, a life or death kind of moment like that, because it re- could very easily have gone very differently. Um, it was a really bad accident. The car was totaled. Um, three of us were injured. I was, you know, in the hospital, had major surgery on my face. Um, but it could have been a lot worse, right? So uh, something happens when you, you know, when you go through an experience like that, and it just changes what's important. It changes your perspective. And I just on a whim one day, I, I got an email from uh, one of the gay cruise companies, uh, and they were doing a, an 11-night Singapore to Hong Kong cruise, all-gay cruise, and, you know, it was expensive, and I thought, I would much rather spend this wedding money on a three-week vacation in Asia than throwing a wedding. So I called my then partner and pitched it to him, and he said yes. And I said, well, I'm dead serious and I'm going to hang up the phone and book it. And I did. And so we ended up having just a couple of friends on the beach in Rehoboth. The justice of the peace uh, was gay. And so he came out to the boardwalk, met us. We walked out on the beach barefoot. The ceremony took five minutes. It cost 75 bucks and we were done. (laughs) So that was our wedding. And then we did a three-week trip to Asia, which was fabulous. I think that um, it was incredibly poignant, and it also made me realize or think about that a lot of us that have been in this for a long time and writing about it and fighting for it and everything else are not necessarily the recipients of, you know, the, you know, for whatever reason and other choices of, you know, going into venues that were normally straight venues, going to bakers that were normally straight bakers and taking advantage of all that, but we really fought for it for other people like us so they could have that advantage. And that was kind yeah. of one of the poignant things I took away from um, that that story. Um, one of the other things that you write about a lot, because obviously from where you were and this was the specific window of marriage equality that you were were seeing was in the shadow of Governor Martin O'Malley of Maryland and, you know, his stance, his flip-flopping and everything else. But there was a point where um, you published the names of the Maryland marriage opponents in 2012. Um, tell us about that and tell us about the backlash that you experienced. Oh, God. Yeah, that was, you know, it's funny. When you, when you do something like this, some kind of a bold uh thing like we did so what it what it was was uh a there was a petition that was circulated around the state to force marriage which had passed 
the legislature to force it onto the ballot so that the people, the voters, you know, putting our right to marriage to a popular vote, which is so outrageous. But that's what happened. So they forced uh, a vote on marriage equality in Maryland after the legislature had approved it. And we came into possession of the database because it's public information. This is a public document. When you sign a petition, take away someone's rights, you don't have a right to anonymity. So we obtained the database and we posted it to our website, which enabled Maryland residents to search it, you know, LGBTQ people to search it to find out, hey, did my parents sign this? Did my, you know, siblings or bosses or neighbors sign this horrible petition to strip away my rights? And it it caused a huge controversy. Um, Tony Perkins denounced us uh, as a hate organization and that we were encouraging violence against Christians who were opposed to gay marriage, and we were criticized even by people on the left. There were there were um, there was a trans a, a, a trans activist in Maryland who uh, criticized us and said that we were off message and this was really reckless and irresponsible. Uh, so it, you know w- when you do something bold like that, it, it it frequently makes for your critics make for strange bedfellows because we were getting it from both sides. Um, but in yeah. the end, I think we were validated because. Um, we became the first state to sustain marriage at the ballot. And, um, this, you know, we, despite the, the petitions and everything else, we, we overcame it and, and marriage was uh, established. Yeah, no, absolutely. I related to that on a couple of levels. One, after uh, Prop 8 passed here in California, um, they also published the donors to that campaign, which I absolutely wanted to see who those were. It was such a shock and to feel like half the state, half the people we knew, half the businesses we were doing business with were um, right. against us. And, you know, it was like, I'll be damned if I'm going to go spend money um, at an establishment that is smiling to our faces and then contributing behind our backs. And there were quite a few of those that were catering to the gay community, but um, undermining us. And so, yeah, right. so kudos, kudos to you for, for doing that. I do want to take you to what you just talked about, though, because that was a incredible day, um, November 7th, 2012. Um, Maryland was the first to uphold marriage publicly, um, and Bar- Barack Obama was reelected. I wrote an article that day about that day being the most poignant um, day in LGBTQ history since Stonewall, and actually I got you talk about negative feedback. I got I got slammed for that because of people not wanting to declare Stonewall the most significant day prior to that, which is like a stupid debate. But anyway, um, but that was the day to me that the tide had turned because the the win in Maryland was so significant. You know, it was the first time in our history across the country that we had won that battle. And it, and then the whole thing started to go in that direction. Uh, where were you that day? What did you feel? And what, what did you feel about that day? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that was a big, big emotional day. I mean, I guess I, in a lot of ways I felt vindicated because not only did we have the big victory in Maryland, which we were we were a big part of, uh, covering that, and we were very, very involved in in that fight. But also, uh, President Obama being 
reelected after he had endorsed marriage equality. And, and, and I write about this in the book, that there were a lot of uh, LGBTQ activist types who were advising the campaign that he should wait. We all kind of knew that privately he was supportive, and, but they were saying, you know, he should wait until after the election because it's going to be so close and we don't want to lose based on gay marriage. And I was, I was editorializing at the time that he should come out and, you know, distinguish himself from Mitt Romney, get on the right side of history and go ahead and do what we already know you believe. And then, of course, Biden had his famous uh, interview on Meet the Press where he jumped the gun, I guess. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, Obama uh, finally came out. And that was in May, you know, just a few months before the election. And um, and Obama, of course, won handily. So that night um, was was vindication on multiple fronts that that you know being uh, the the first president uh, to run uh, as publicly supportive of marriage equality was not a, a curse. It did not hurt him. He actually won pretty handily uh, in that election. So so that was a that was a big uh, turning point, and people forget. Uh, you know, the power of the bully pulpit and and the power of the sitting president making that endorsement. And because what happened literally within hours of his interview with Robin Roberts, who was closeted at the time, uh, what happened in the immediate aftermath of that interview was that you saw people from all walks of life on social media coming out in support of gay marriage. It was politicians, even Republican politicians, Rob Portman, um, it was celebrities, it was rappers, it was athletes, you know, all, all these folks that had been hemming and hawing or, you know, maybe needed a little push, a little public encouragement, uh, came flooding out to support marriage equality after Obama did it. And, and the other important part of, of what he did and, and why his winning reelection so um, convincingly is that the Supreme Court, which ruled on marriage a, you know, a few years later, um, does not like to get out in front of public opinion, right? So having the sitting president win election, re-election as a gay marriage supporter was just tremendously important on multiple fronts. So that was a, yeah, that was a huge election and a very pivotal uh, moment in the movement. Yeah, and the yeah, and the snowball kept kept rolling because it's like marriage equality came. All of a sudden, people were visibly married across the country, which had never happened before. So it wasn't you know the mindset and the familiarity changed in in the common American experience. And and so it's like yeah, I don't think you know, and I agree with the the theme of the book that you know our enemies are definitely out to get us. But um, we're a lot firmer in, entrenched than we ever were. So it'll be, right. you know, we we were not going quietly. Um, one thing you just mentioned, though, I, I, that actually occurs as sort of a theme in your book is you mentioned Robin Roberts, but there are quite a few celebrities and news people who were closeted. And you bring up writings in the past because they've all since come out. But before before they came out, but everybody was wink-winking around, like Anderson Cooper, Jodie Foster, and you had one poignant story around um, Shepard Smith, 
Tell us what happened <laughs> with him. Yeah, Sepp and I are linked forever now, thanks to that outrage movie, <laughs> um, which I talk about in the book. Uh, so the Sepp Smith thing, I forget what year this even was now, but um, I was at my favorite bar in New York, which is Brandy's on the Upper East Side. It's a piano bar, gay piano bar. And uh, it was late, probably midnight, and I was with a couple friends, and we sat down at the bar, and I look over next to me, and there's kind of this you know, well-dressed, good-looking guy sitting there, and he starts chatting with me, and we had a lovely conversation. I knew who it was. I knew it was Shepard Smith from Fox News, but I didn't let on that I knew. And, you know, we chatted for a good while. He bought us martinis, and uh, he was singing along to the show tunes and having a good time, and then he sort of, you know, clumsily made a pass, and you know, asked to get together for dinner, invited me to his place, and I politely declined. And uh, and then we left, and that was it. And um, and people think people were mad that I did this, but I actually waited a year. I did not run home and you know out him um, it out. because he <laughs> he was just doing. You know, he, he works for Fox News, but he's doing his job. He wasn't somebody out in the press, you know, looking for attention. And then Katrina happened, and he got a lot of attention because his news reporting on Fox was contradicting what Bush was saying, that, you know, heck of a job, and remember all of that, uh, while 1,800 people drowned in New Orleans. And Shepard Smith, and I gave him, I give him a lot of credit for this, I mean, he really, he went there and stood in the flooded streets and said, Bush is wrong. What he's saying isn't true. People are drowning and dying, and this is a crisis. And for doing that, he got a lot of national media attention, and he was suddenly being profiled in magazines and sitting for photo shoots, and and that's when I outed him because they were asking questions about his personal life, and he was lying or playing coy. Mm. And, you know, you just right. can't have it both ways. If you want to have privacy, that's really easy to have. You know, go to work, go home, shut the door, and you have privacy. But when you hire a publicist and you're granting interviews to reporters and sitting for photo shoots for magazines, this is not the behavior of somebody who is seeking privacy. So that's when I outed him. It was a, a year later. And um, yeah, no, it's and and it the frustration that you have in your book is is well-founded of, of people who are out there. And, and eventually, obviously, they all saw that and, and did the right thing and, and outed themselves at different points. But you also talk about Lindsey Graham, who has not yet done that. Um, give a little more detail about why people feel like he should be. But it's, and I want to ask you about something that's not in your book, but I think we've almost reached a new low, a new low with like the George Santos type who are presumably outwardly gay, but policy-wise anti-gay. Um, you know, it's like, it's been one thing when we've had these anti-gay politicians who were secretly gay and damn, it was like we absolutely needed to out them because, you know, their own internal homophobia was obviously at play. What is your view, apart from his complete duplicitousness across the board, but on George Santos, gay man, and that horrible policy that he stands for. Well, 
sure. I mean, it's called self-loathing, right? <laughs> and it's not new. Sure. Uh, Roy Cohn, and there have been many examples since then. Ken Melman, whom I write about also in the book. Uh, there have been plenty of terrible gays over the years, and George Santos is just the latest one to come to our attention. Um, but these are just cynical, sad people who um, – they they are happy to sell out their own people, their own community, for for power, for money, for self interest, and it is it is the most disgusting thing. And I have zero patience for it. And that's why I have no qualms about identifying gay people as gay. I don't care. Uh, I don't use the really the term outing even anymore because I think it's dated and I think it's just truth telling. Um, so. George Santos uh, is just a, a bizarre, <laughs> uh, I hope soon to be tossed on the, you know, ash heap of, of history because it sounds like they're going to get him on some campaign finance violations. Uh, but, um, but, you know, there's no shortage of these kinds of, of people uh, in the course of, of our recent, you know, modern political history of horrible gay people. Um, I think what's interesting, well, interesting might be a strong word. Um, What's a little uh, more unique about his case is that he is, or he does identify as an an openly gay man. Um, A lot of the people that have done us harm have been closet cases. So I guess that's progress. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Oh, yay. Okay, cool. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Here we go. Um, I want to pivot here uh, because one one of the, Parts of your book um, has nothing to do with our, our progress on gay rights per se, but is your relationship with Janet Jackson and what <laughs> she experienced and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of the misogyny that hit her. Um, can Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, once again, I have been vindicated because I've been defending her since it happened, that um, Super Bowl incident all those years ago. I think it was 2004. Um, And, uh, you know, I write about her because I'm a fan of hers. And also, she's always been very accessible to the Blade. So I've interviewed her several times. And she's great. I mean, she's just, I don't know, just she's sweet and she's professional and she's on time and and. I don't know. She's she's just a really good person, and so um, I feel protective of her. And um, so yeah, I, I include I I interviewed her. Um, they offered me her publicist, and I got to be friendly. And she offered me the first interview uh, after one of her albums dropped after the the Super Bowl. So I included that because um, I thought it was just a it was just an interesting timing. And uh, Oprah got all the credit for landing Janet's post Super Bowl interview, but actually I did too. So uh <laughs> so I included that there. But but I think you were you were um asking about the misogyny piece of it and uh absolutely, you know, she was a victim of, of, of that and and you know, Justin's white privilege, uh he was not uh punished for what happened. Uh he he in fact his career took off. And uh, he was celebrated at the Grammys the next week, and she was uh, uh, disinvited. So, um, yeah, I always thought that was horrible and and wrote pieces in her defense. And now, uh, in the last year, there was a New York Times 
did a big documentary feature on the whole thing and, you mm-hmm. know, explained the, the sexism and the racism and all that went into uh, what happened to her. So I'm vindicated yet again. <laughs> yes, you are. And, and I was, again, I was right with you from the start because, you know, I agree. In fact, I, I wrote a note because you, you were, uh, you were much more gentler on uh Justin Timberlake here than you were in the book. In fact, I wrote a note in the sidelines that is that how do you really feel about Justin Timberlake? <laughs> so yeah. So if you want to read more about Justin Timberlake, definitely check out that part of the book. Um, so I've, I've got to go to it because I already mentioned it in the show, and and I don't want people to feel unsatisfied. But you got to tell us the Liver and Cox story at the uh, Washington uh, Correspondence Dinner. Sure. Oh, she's great. We had, she's a good sport. We had a great night together. Uh, so what happened was, coincidentally, the correspondence dinner was the night after Caitlyn Jenner's big coming out interview with Diane Sawyer. So Caitlyn Jenner does this big thing. The whole country's talking about it. And the next night, Laverne and I are walking the red carpet, and everybody wanted to interview Laverne for her thoughts on Caitlyn. So... I was kind of holding her purse and, you know, walking her down the line. And we got through, like, the fourth interview, and she turns to me and she goes, if one more person asks me about <laughs> effing Caitlyn Jenner, I'm going to lose it. And I was like, all right, let's go. Let's go inside. So we go inside, and she's all, you know, she did the full glam. She had the glam squad and the hair and the makeup and the, the, the loaned jewelry and the gown and the whole thing. We're sitting there, and the lights go down, and the program's about to begin, and she <laughs> leans over to me, and we'd been talking about her bracelet. She was wearing this enormous diamond bracelet that was loaned to her by one of the big, you know, fancy jewelers, and she <laughs> leans over to me, and she goes, Kevin, I don't know if I can curse on your show or not. Uh, <laughs> yes, you can. Bracelet, yeah, fuck yes, the you fucking can. bracelet is gone. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, the bracelet's gone. So I am literally on all fours under the table with my iPhone flashlight, like trying to find this diamond bracelet and it's not there. And so I went and found the head of security and I told him and he kind of, he said, well, if the staff finds it, it's gone. <laughs> and I oh. said, well, maybe Jay Fonda will find it and turn it in. So <laughs> I go back to the table and, you know, she's panicking and she's texting her stylist and, you know, I'm, I forget what it was worth, but it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you know, she was she, she was she was very alarmed and concerned that the jeweler was going to think that she stole it. So uh, anyway, it was quite a drama. And anyway, the night ended. We went back to security. They never found the bracelet. We parted ways. I went back home. Four o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. It's Laverne. Kevin, I found the bracelet. <laughs> It had slipped off her wrist and fallen to the bottom of her large purse. So crisis averted, she found the bracelet. But it was it was a fun, yeah. a great, we had a great fun night. Yeah, that that was that was amazing. I'm still like going, okay, luckily that must have been a great big purse to have captured the bracelet ball. But <laughs> it was, yeah, it was. I carried yeah, it. It was, it was night, sort of so. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like great Ocean's Eleven kind of um, imagery there. Um, you had a couple of other, other interesting dates. Oh, go ahead. I just want to say the other funny thing that happened that night was I got to introduce Laverne to Antonin Scalia, who was there with Katie Couric 
uh, as Katie Kirk states, and Laverne knew Katie, so we, the three of us were standing there chatting, and then Katie says, oh, I want to introduce you to my date, and this this kind of heavyset guy turns around, and it's Justice Antonin Scalia, and, you know, like, our jaws hit the floor, and I'm like, and this is April, and we're expecting the marriage ruling in two months. So, you know, we know he's actively considering the marriage case. And I said, well, this is uh, Justice Scalia. This is Laverne Cox. And I don't know. We talked about the weather or something. I don't something lame. And afterwards, we were both yeah. like, yeah. oh, my God. We felt like we should have had something really compelling to say to sway his vote on marriage, but we didn't come up with anything. Yeah, it's it's that that it's a very very weird thing um i had written a piece out that was targeting kennedy um inviting him to to dinner with me and my sons um and that went viral and you know yeah but yeah we were all trying to <clears throat> get in front of those justices at, at the time to um right. make a case but it's yeah it's sort of weird that scalia and he was really good friends with ginsburg and it was like you know yeah. it's it, philosophy and personality just seem to be in two different camps. Um, but uh, you went to that dinner with, for example, Kathy Griffin, and that night sounded like it wasn't quite as fun for you. Can you give us a that little insight horrible. to what it's like <laughs> to be that was the worst. in the shadow of the she Griffin? Was the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, she was by far the worst. Uh, date that I've had to that event. Um, it, you know, this was during the Trump years, and the event kind of lost its luster, right? Nobody wanted to. Nobody wanted to go. There weren't any celebrities that were coming, and it was kind of a a, a sad event for a couple of years there. But um, but I reached out to Kathy because I, you know, she had been through that whole severed head thing, and I figured it would get tension. And she'd probably be the only celebrity in the place, so we'd be we'd be guaranteed some media coverage. So I invited her; she accepted, and then it quickly went south. I mean, the, all the demands for extra tickets, and I don't know this and that. She just had a lot of demands. Um, the night before the dinner, her publicist quit on her and emailed me and said, "Good luck. <laughs> I'm done. I'm out." Okay. Like, Oh, and anyway, it was it was a it was a it was a mess. And then at the dinner itself, she was like yelling at Sean Spicer at the next table. And the real the real drama happened when the deputy White House press secretary was walking past our table, and he was drinking a Tecate beer, a Mexican beer. And he saw him, and I guess she recognized him. And she was like, I know, she said something like, you know, how do you sleep at night and working for this administration? You know, and, and he says, very well, thank you. And um, and then he said, he said, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go drink this beer before we build the wall and we can't get them anymore. And that was it. She lost it. She told him, you know, suck her dick, you. And, <laughs> I mean, the F-bombs were flying. It was this big scene, and I just wanted to crawl under the table because she's going to jet out back to L.A. the next day, and I'm the one that's stuck in D.C. having to work <laughs> with these people. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Pretty, uh, pretty mortifying, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. So, um, Kevin, first of all, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, 
We are almost out of time. Before we run out of time, where will pe- where can people get the book? And for people listening, there are these stories and more in the book, so you definitely want to read it. We've barely scratched the surface here. Um, but, Kevin, well, we when talked, is it out? When, when can people get it? Sure. So it, it, it'll, it should be available for pre-order tomorrow on Amazon and anywhere else you buy a book. Um, and then by next Tuesday is when the hard copies will be available for purchase. And you can go to kevinapp.com or, or just go to Amazon. Uh, and uh, the, the books will be available next Tuesday. And I just want to say very quickly because we focus a lot on the celebrities, which is great uh, because I want people to know that this is not a – sort of typical kind of dry history lesson book. Um, there, I included a lot of this pop culture stuff because the blade covers, you know, everything that, that happens in our society from, from politics and law to pop culture and sports. So there's a little bit of everything in here for, for people. It's not all dry politics and, and, and history, but there is a lot of that in there. So if you want to relive the marriage battles and the don't ask, don't tell and and learn how all of those things unfolded, you know, all of that stuff is in there along with a lot of insider stories about what was going on behind the scenes during those years. So it's a right. it's part history lesson, part celebrity dish. Plus, one of the stories we didn't get to and we haven't talked about that is in that book that is worthy of a movie is what happens at the Washington Blade itself and the drama mm. that occurs to that and how the Washington Blade is still standing today. So I'm not going to say anything more about that. We're going to leave that as the cliffhanger of something you need to get the book for and read. Uh, but it is, it, is a, it is a fascinating read, soup to nuts, everything that, that we've talked about. Um, Kevin, thank you for who you are, what you do, and what you've contributed to all of us. Uh, deeply appreciate it, and I especially appreciate publishing my different stories which you guys have done um so so on a personal level thank you um i want to thank brody levesque for his work on this show and what he does at the la blade um also a fine beacon of journalism there um for those of us that rated lgbt radio we will be back again next week uh we do have another fantastic show lined up for you then. I won't tell you what it is. You are just going to have to tune in and find out. So that's it for today, and we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 